0: It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to I'ma Let You Finish listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp.com slash I'ma Let You, I-M-M-A-L-E-T-U. That's BetterHelp.com slash I'ma let you, I M M A L E T U. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Hey, everybody. It's I'ma Let You Finish, show number 105. You know how you know it's hot? I'm introducing the show because Courtney is currently, we're melting Bitch, in our rooms. Bitch, I can't rooms. do it. I can't do no, it. No. <laughs> I mean, not to make light of it, because right <laughs> now in England, in Europe, they are literally melting. We're just having summer in New York, but, you know. And it's it, not it, even it's, the
1: hottest point of the day yet. It's just it's not really even the hot, humid. It's the morning. The heat, yeah. It's still the morning, but it's coming. You can feel
0: it. yeah. Yeah. Well, we decided in honor of the world melting down, women's rights being stripped away from them, and Courtney unable to get his weed connection <laughs> until later today, that we Ugh. were gonna have we were gonna have us we are do have a special guest. But we decided because she is so special, and I'm about to like touch the hem of your garment. And sing your praises because you are someone that, and, and she's literally holding her garment up to the camera. A <laughs> uh, Fun fact, our guest and I are wearing matching Hawaiian shifts, <laughs> floral shifts. I didn't send Courtney the email about that. Sorry. No, babe. my flat <laughs> titties
1: are in a tank top. You know it's hot when <laughs> these flat titties are in a tank top. <laughs>
0: flat titties in a tank top is your password for something, right? Well,
1: it's the, it's but- the title of my new album that I'm recording right now. Okay. Well,
0: speaking of new albums, we we always have a guest or often have a guest, but this time our guest is uber special and we've decided to bring her on first. And this, our guest is the author, writer, musician, and one of my dear friends and personal Jesuses, even though she's a Jew, but Jesus was a Jew too, (laughs) Vivian Goldman. So Vivian is joining us. Yeah. Vivian is joining us from Jamaica, not Queens, people, the real Jamaica. Um, Vivian Goldman, I would say she needs no introduction, but I'm going to give her one anyway. Vivian Goldman is a veteran music journalist. Uh, We are not that different in age, but I read her when I was coming up as a writer. I used to read her because there were not a lot of women writing for music magazines back then. And um, I actually remember the first time I met you, Vivian. It was the day you got your green card.
2: Yeah. Didn't um, meet you at Nana Cherry's house? No, I
0: met you. No, I met you before that. I met you. You were with Jeanette and Judy Nylon and Ed Steinberg somewhere in the Lower East Side and you had just gotten your green card. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. Vivian is an author. Her most recent book is Revenge of the She-Punks, which we'll talk about. Vivian is an, an ex. Well, she's Bi- Vivian is basically like,
1: let me just sum there. it up like this.
0: Please do, she, please do. I'm I'm sweating to death.
1: <laughs> she's worked with both Fayla and Bob Marley. Two people, two <laughs> for most of us are. I I have very 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 few friends who actually got to see Bob Marley before. I'm one line. of them, and Albert one is of one them. of them, and okay. I don't know if I have. I'm sure I know some. No one in my circle is ever seen fail these two these men are like mythic creatures (laughs) and you know what i mean really to so many people because you think about how the music has lived on but they've not been around you know what i mean as the especially especially bob bob's music became even more popular after he died you know what i mean so for most of us he's bob marley the legend and the family's still around but how did you, how did you end up working with both of those men? That's insane.
2: Hmm. Well, at the end of the day, you have to say it's just ja. <laughs> right. I couldn't have planned it. It's just how it worked out, um, and it's true. Uh, like Amy says, there were very few, virtually no sort of female writers working at the time when well, I was coming up in the very vigorous. British rock press of the you know mid to late 1970s, which actually became a, an international standard. Like in New York, people used to queue up outside Gem Spa to be able to buy these magazines. So at a young age, you know, I, I really was able to find an audience with my writing. And you know, you really had a, a lot of schooling, and you learnt on the job. You know, it's all completely punk. And um, but before then, I had started working with Bob Marley. I'm telling you, nobody could plan this. Um, I just got a job um, working in PR. You know, I'd been a student uh, at a progressive university, Warwick, and obviously we listened to sort of Miles Davis on the corner, you know, and we listened to the Wailers. You know what I mean? Every, hipsters and, and uh, you know, and West Indians were listening to the Wailers. And then I found myself promoting him. He wasn't widely known, Bob. Not at all. or The whalers and I, I still remember the fights that I had with editors to get him coverage. But I, I was young and like had no clue, and I would go over people's heads and speak to publishers and like rant at them. And in the end, I, I, I managed to get it done. You got it along. done.
1: Yeah, you got it done. Yeah,
2: and then I became a full-time journalist and just sort of segued to working with him uh, as a journalist and traveling with him and staying at his house. And then I also got to work with Fella as a journalist. But, again, like like Bob had the I3, the women backup singers, you know, so you had a female element, you know, within the band. Right. Which made it also nice for a, a girl journalist, as it were, like myself. Right. So you had that very much so on the road with Fella, you know, don't get me started. I could honestly talk about this for hours and we've only got a few minutes. <laughs> but, you know, as the person... Who's you know j- recently written this feminist history, Revenge of the She Punks uh, of Music, uh, mm-hmm. and, I, and now I'm coming out with a fella-related book
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: next year. Nice. Um, um, that I've been working on since 2004. Hello. Uh, <laughs> yes, with fella's artist, as they call him in quotes, Lemmy Garriokwu. And also I'm doing this collected journalism book that's coming out next year, Roots, Roots and Revolution with White Rabbit Press. And I'm mentioning this in particular because the, in, the, in, the, in the articles anthology, boy, I've just crammed in as much filler as I could. Right. You know, there's a lot of filler material in there. And, and, and I wrote the other book. The I mean, I've done a lot of it, but I wrote the bulk of it here in Jamaica last year in the COVID time. Right. I'm mm-hmm. telling you, for me, I teach the fellow course at NYU, I swear I felt like I was writing a commentary on the Bible. Wow. Wow. Well, because you go to go through his canon and relate it to uh, you know, relate it to what was going on at the time and the quickly I know I'm talking a lot, sorry. No, it's good, we way, love it. <laughs> we we want you to talk a lot.
1: <laughs> just to tie
2: it in with a feminism right. because writing the book, I found myself at a certain point. Having to slightly go off into a sort of sort of like something you would put in asterisks on the side, right. I had to address this issue like the elephant in the room. It's very hard for people to get it, you know that they think, you, you know, they think that fellow is anti women and so right. on and anti family. But I'm telling you, how can I? What I mean. Obviously, I couldn't have worked with him if he was really like that. That's one thing, you know, um, but th- that's, that's just me. The point is there was a couple of songs he made that, were, that sounded, his sarcasm was so scathing mm-hmm. about the women that people completely forgot to put it together with his partner record. Um, right. His song is called Lady. It's one of his greatest of his greatest. But he has another uh, com- almost companion record, gentleman in which he's equally scathing about men so you know he was just a satirical guy but you know his kinder kusha side did come out in this one song but uh, which was an early song but also you know you have to sometimes you know look 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 at the practice you know look, look at how life was lived and People don't understand because he was married to these 37 women and it's also exotic and weird. It's a lot to explain in a show, but that is what happened.
1: Well, listen, certain things are cultural and it's just different. (laughs) The times are different. Where people grow up is different. What happens in their culture is normal. And I think sometimes in America... It was never
2: normal. No, no, uh, it was not normal never normal. No, no. What he uh, did was not normal. eh. Because normally... You have your four wives, right? Or you right. don't have Well, I knew there was wives. multiple, so,
1: so you can't have... Going in, over four is kind of...
2: In I, the Muslim right. and in the polygamy, I guess you... Re, but it was very unusual in mm-hmm. that era to have as many. It was like unheard of, really. But he was making a point. Now, to put it all well in context, you'll probably have to read my book, but I just wanted mm-hmm. to pipe up here to say... Well, now that I'm he going, to, have, of, I'm really going to read your opportunities. book. job <laughs> <laughs> he gave a lot of women job opportunities right. and careers, you know. Right. And uh, Bob was also an old school guy, you know. When you came down to it, honestly, I remember once going to interview for a big interview, and I specially got a Laura Ashley dress mm-hmm. because I knew he would love it <laughs> with red and yellow stripes. And he was so he was like, "Oh, look at Vivian when she saw things." I'm, of trying, to, up I'm to me. trying to imagine you and Laura
0: Ashley. First off, I'm just trying to make that image.
2: Yeah, I- it was, it was it was these red and yellow stripes. Okay. So a, all right. a lot of our heroes
1: are complicated. That's the thing that people don't realize. We're a lot of shit, we're all complicated, right? A lot of our heroes, people that we that we might idolize up, have some shit that sometimes you might be like, "Hmm." Well,
0: well, people, you know, yeah. Viv, I just wanted to um I had seen Marley when I was in high school um, really? at The Beacon. Um, I will swear to this day that The Temptations were the opening act, but I'm not 100% positive, but that would make sense. And then, but my real introduction to reggae was via punk rock, because when I started, started becoming involved in the punk rock scene in San Francisco, I had a roommate who turned me on to Two Sevens Clash and turned me on to, you know, the Clash recovering, you know. And so, Reggae, reggae was never as embedded in the culture in the United States the way it was in England. Um, you turned me on to Ken Booth actually, um, but I, I wanted to know if you could just talk a little bit about that because there was a real spillover between punk and reggae. I mean, yeah. they were—you would think on surface they have nothing to do with each other—but you really um, examined that that sort of uh, Venn diagram.
1: Um, I think the the principles are the same to me. They kind of have the same Mm. principle.
2: Certain revolutionary aspects. Well, that was really, as the French say, ma ma formation culturelle. Was being embedded at the heart of what Bob Marley called the punky reggae party and involved in the birth of rock against racism, the truly independent anti racist movement that was a mass movement for the people, truly. You know, and it, you know, it, it, I teach about it now. And I did, if anybody wants to know more, I mean, to be honest, I do write about it quite extensively in my book, The Book of Exodus The Making and Meaning of Bob Marley and the Wailers, album of the century. And also, I have several articles from the time in this forthcoming just telling you in case you're interested, to be honest. So um, it it, it was the rebel youth's union. Uh, You've got to understand it's all a post-colonial story, and that is sometimes hard for Americans to really understand because Americans of all sorts have long forgotten mainly those times when America was a colony, and America wasn't too keen on it. In America, right. stop being a colony, you know. But um, it's to do with the end of the war and the end of the colonies, it being too cumbersome for the British Empire and to continue, them trying to translate it to the Commonwealth, them inviting people from the formerly, the newly independent countries wave of independence in Is the 1960s. Is this Windrush? Is
0: Windrush era? What they
2: now call the Windrush generation were the first to arrive, and that's been if anybody wants to look it up, were a cause of a lot of scandal over the last few years with people yep. from that generation being denied their rights and identity and so on. So what happened was, in that punk time, which was not dissimilar to now, it seemed like complete chaos. And if you look at the leadership in, say, England, you know, America, everything seems to be in a huge state of flux. There seems to be a massive fight for the soul of all the nations. And that's what it was like. Very similar to now, a lot of strikes, unusually hot summers, and basically anarchy and running amok. So the rebel subcultures of the streets were the punks and the young dreads because Rasta, despite its Old Testament overtones, you know, you know, it, it was also a liberation movement. It was breaking away from this, you know, white centric perception of other faiths. I remember Bob saying to me, you know, because he'd gone to church as a child and stuff, I remember saying to him, you know, uh, Haile Selassie, who's the deity within Rasta, you know everybody mm-hmm. says he's a terrible dictator and so on, and uh, he looked at me sort of almost slightly dumbfounded, and he said well, do you expect me to worship a white god? So they understood because the way Christianity was projected in the colonies, right. it was poor old Christ, it wasn't his fault you know, it was used as a tool of the plantation owners and the slave masters so if Rasta was really a big liber- liberating force, and guess what? Same thing for Feller. If you look at the very complex interweaving history of Feller's family, uh, with with with, a, with a, you know basically white Anglo churches like the Anglican Church, like uh, his his family, his forebears were involved in um, you know doing a liturgy in you know uh, translating it into Yoruba and so on. They were major figures in the establishment, so. Uh, just as Bob took to Rasta, you know, Feller became ever more involved in very, very deep African science. And that was really almost the arc of his life to at the end of his life when he really wasn't well. He was almost a recluse and just totally committed to spirituality, to African spirituality. On the side of the stage in the shrine, his club, you you know, you had a shrine. Right, where they would worship before they went on stage, which include, you know. Anyway, I could talk for hours. <laughs> had some relationship. But you know, but you
1: can also, I can always know. feel that in fellas' music. Something as a as a there's something very visceral and tribal as a black man mm. when I hear his music, that is so familiar from the deepest pits within me. I understand it. I feel it. The way my body moves to it. The relationship I have to it, even when I discovered Bob Marley's music really young, there was something about it. Like from the first time I heard it, because I heard Bob real, you know, in New York. I heard everything growing up here. We just, I just heard everything, and um, you know, because growing up in Queens, you know, like that. I grew up in Queens. That you know, I I was raised partially in Brooklyn, and we moved to Queens when I was in first grade to Queens, and you know, that was when all of the black middle-class people, newly middle-class families buying homes. So there was a lot of kids from different islands and stuff. So all of that music, and from Africa, was very present. But it felt familiar, even from the first time I heard it I was like this is part of me it's it's the same way I felt the very first time my, going to my adrenaline's house and she had Grace Jones records and I picked up a Grace Jones record and even though I'd heard her songs on the radio because back then BLS Frankie Crocker would play the songs I looked at her and it, she was so familiar you know and I feel that same thing with with Fella and and with Bob Marley like though, it's just it's such a black, and it is a universal experience, it really is, but as a black man to me, it's such a particular experience to me when I hear that music.
0: Can I just jump on that? I'm sorry, Viv, I just wanted to, because what Courtney's bringing up is like a really important point. I mean, it it explains a lot of ways why Fela was played in the clubs in New York. I mean, Zombie, you heard that in the clubs, but it sort of gets to something that we've been discussing in that there. There seems to be right now in the United States a, finally, a recognition of African, Afrobeat, African-influence artists. Um, Courtney, you're a big proponent of Thames. Um, I love that, Thames. Yeah. WizKid and Burna Boy is certainly making inroads here. And it's stopped becoming this sort of quasi-colonialist world beat as if, where the you know as if there's a different world, and I was wondering, I mean, it's such a broad topic, but I was wondering, Viv, why why do you think it's finally making inroads here? Do you have do you have any insight on it since you know both worlds so well?
2: Well, one thing I'd like to say is that uh, even when you're talking about Fela and Bob, obviously you're not talking about like pure African roots music or pure Jamaican roots music, but you're right. talking about music. Slightly post colonial music, where the creator of the music, Bob and Feller, were also extremely influenced by America. So you get Curtis Mayfield and the impressions and all that soul coming out, and of course, you know, coming out in the Wailers, and of course, Feller, vastly influenced by James Brown. So we were already talking about this interweaving. Now, when you talk about why there's this sudden wave of interest. You know, uh, I'm not really a marketer, right? Um, I, I think at the end of the day, um, it, 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 the strength of the art became just too big to be ignored. Like the way right. Burner Boy really asserts and claims his space and says, "I'm not going to be halfway down in the poster in small letters. No, you know, I'm I'm the African giant." And there was a good interview by Lola Ogbonike and GQ. You know, and she's talking to him about um, you know the Feller comparisons. Now, his grandfather was a manager of Fella's, and everybody went through the Feller camp, you see, because Feller was, was it. So you know, generations of artists coming together, and so you know, uh, burner Boy says in this piece, "I just wouldn't be who I am without Feller. Maybe I wouldn't be. You know, Feller is sort of such a towering godfather. Now, what, but when you look." at uh, like the videos of Afrobeat, you know, contemporary Afrobeats, they look like, you know, often they, they you know, the, the clothes are hip hop. You know, we're talking about a merging of cultures. Absolutely. So we're talking about Nigerian popular music that where hip hop has been a vast influence for years, you know. Right. And um, hip hop became a lingua franca for everything. At the end of the day, why is it happening now? You know, I'm not actually Ja, personally. I can't really say. But I would tend to put it down to the historical process. You know, the thing, you know, just became like the dam had to burst. And it ties in with uh, what we've recently seen, which the government is trying to reverse all the time. You know, obviously with taking away our rights as female people. And, uh, you know, the very basic rights and all the toxic behavior of centuries that, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter and Me Too, you know, served as a sort of conduit to release some of that rage, you know. And, um, you know, I think it's part of the historical process. It's like within many sectors outside of the American government. People are feeling that, you know, women's time has come, it's time for a more diverse palette, the media shouldn't only represent people of one hue, you know. My feeling is no taxation without representation. You know, why should people pay their tickets to go and see their films and they never get a fair crack at seeing themselves? And that's sort of when I was coming up, I was always told, Oh, you can't put black people on the cover of the paper. This was a huge thing. So starting off in my career. I used to have huge rows about this. As to women, there virtually weren't any. So, you know, <coughs> so... You don't, you don't know the I,
1: fights I've had trying to get black people on pop radio and to maintain the records. And we're talking in the, in the 2010s, you know what I mean? It's like, it's still certain fights that you can't believe you are still fighting. I, I, I to answer your question, Amy, <laughs> I absolutely believe now also because it's more accessible. Everybody, you, can, say, you internet, can assess the, the world internet. in your pocket, you and now you have, everybody, they're not yes. buying records, they're streaming, so you know what? Right. You can be like, oh, and if you like Burner Boy, then it's going to suggest these other artists, then you realize, oh, these exactly. artists are just the ones who've broken through, then you actually go over and you look at all these African artists who have been huge stars and making really amazing music, and it's so accessible by... The touch of your fingers. A click
0: of a button. I mean, back yep. in the day, if you wanted to get quote-unquote world beat, you had to go to Sterns Records, you know, <laughs> down in the financial district. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of like... You had to know the few people. Yeah, now you can go, oh, it's on this soundtrack. I'm gonna watch mm-hmm. Top Boy. There it is. Mm-hmm. And you know, and young yeah, definitely the internet for all the of the accessibility evil, streaming, is, is, yeah. the all the evils, there is something to be said for. There it is. I can listen to it and decide and make yeah, I think you can't you can't Very exactly, much so you can't it. deny the um it's become much more democratized in that way. That it's and it takes away the exoticness of it, which is such a, a double-edged sword, because as soon as you say something exotic, you make it an other. And as soon as you make it an other, you can you can, you can can be prejudiced against it and, and, and listen, exercise it.
1: Yeah, and we've talked about it on this show. It's like, it's not like US doesn't like African artists. They just, we just tend to like African artists as jazz artists. We'll let you in if you're a jazz artist. You can have success here. You can be Angelique Kijo if you're considered like jazz or world music. Now, the younger generation, more hip-hop, the pop artists, it's like, look at the K-pop situation. It is unstoppable. There's a, every incredible. week there's like a record coming by somebody that all the kids know, and I'm like, I have no idea who this is. The we song have is no cute. idea who these and, people are. And the funny thing is that I hear the records, and it's all the black records from this, the 80s and the 90s. Right. They it's all sound all like, like they're doing black it. R&B artists from the 80s right. and 90s with our choreography. And I'm like, no wonder you guys like this. This is new edition. Yeah. This is, I was going to say,
0: it's the Korean know? tribute to Sync and new edition.
1: It, you, know? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, Okay. It's So I do love that it's becoming more international, but I do want more African artists to be able to get on the pop charts. Right now, Thames has had two number ones on the pop chart, and WizKid has had number one. But there's a lot of African artists that are making really am- amazing, amazing, amazing music. I there's artists from all over coming. the world making... Um, yes. More from the Caribbean. I want to hear from everybody. Mm-hmm. Now tell us about this new book and the... the, the punk. Every time we talk about punk, I always tell Amy, well, I knew one person and that was Wendy O. Williams. So I feel good enough to say at least I knew who the fuck Wendy O. Williams was when it counted. You know what I mean? I absolutely knew who she was. And, you know, Nina Hagen, Nina Hagen Band, because I love, I, I discovered her when she was Nina Hagen Band. So, you know, but that's it.
0: Did I ever tell you, Viv, that I was a singer in the the first all girl punk band in San Francisco?
2: Yes, years ago you did mention it. And I, I remember was kicked. It.
0: I was kicked out for not being decadent enough. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you did they
1: want you to do I don't
0: know they said I hung out with that my friend was a hippie which is hilarious because he ended up being in 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 working with all these underground uh queer acts but anyway yes I digressed but I just thought i <laughs> i was man and thanks guys I became a drug addict I hope you're happy uh, <laughs> But yeah, talk about Revenge of the Sheepunks. Please, please talk about that book. And then talk about, please talk about your upcoming anthology.
2: Well, uh, um, Revenge of the Sheepunks, funnily enough, it arose. It wasn't something I pitched, you know. It was something that came to me because of the music. So weird. Um, because in 2016, a label, an indie label in Europe put out a compilation of my old music from like when I was in the Flying Lizards in the 1980s, Um, and it it became very popular. And one of my old songs, you know, was in this uh, Pitchfork, 33 top feminist punk songs. And due to that, I wrote a little tiny, tiny thing in Pitchfork, it was like one of those Hollywood films where the University of Texas Press rang me up and said, would you be interested to write? And it's interesting because I'm never... I was so embedded in this idea no one gives a shit about... You know what I mean? Right, I never right. even expected a book like that. So I had to sit down and really think about what I wanted to say. You know? And the point is, you know, punk is so swiftly dismissed, even though it's so prevalent... And uh, to me, the most important aspect of punk was the liberating impact it had on women. Otherwise, there was one group, there was another group, there was the Rolling Stones, and there was the Clash, but there was never really the Slits or the Raincoats. It was like a new paradigm, you know? And uh, of course, it was my formative years, and this was my posse as well. And we'd successively, you know, the way Babylon works is they have a way of, they try and trivialize you and write you out of history. So I realized this was my chance to construct the arc of the evolution of that sort of music made by women. This was my chance. And I wanted to find out very much, you know, a lot of people feel that punk, is uh, a tiny radius between CBGBs and the Westway in London, you know. But I, want, I wanted to show that it, 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 it had set fires. It had set fires, and energize people around the world particularly women so i literally was a conceptual book i set out i had this feeling i said i know i know in my gut that around the world there's going to be loads of women with amazing stories of their struggle to overcome and express themselves as artists in the a- massively hostile environment like the cockocracy of the rock business never wanted to let in women really except unless they completely fit the mold obviously then you're fine you know so um uh i you know i literally researched it took me two and a half years you know i did a lot of research on youtube i was looking for a certain kind of voice and i found it you know and um and when you put the stories together, extremely powerful, I, I felt. And to be, I mean, I felt. I shouldn't say that because I'm the writer. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed, you know. No, but
1: you should feel good. Listen. I found the it thing. Extremely You powerful. should But you should feel, because if you're... Putting something out there, just telling an important story. I think it's important for you to really feel good about it. You yeah, know I what do. I mean? I because do. then that gets other people excited when they hear that and be like, well, now I want to read this book. I do. First of all, do. are you writing an autobiography? Because I feel like you, you've been, mm-hmm. you're like, you have to, just talking to you right now. I'm hearing all this, it's just like, okay, I was in a band, they called me up because of these songs, I wrote this but. That has to all go someplace, or there needs to be a movie about you, but you can't let them cast anybody fucked up to play you. It has to be somebody really, good. It has to be Vivian.
2: It has
0: to be Vivian.
1: I must
2: say acting. I do many things, but acting is not one of them. (sighs)
1: So this book is out now, right? This is... Oh, yeah.
2: It came out a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, so I was lucky to get to promote it. For me, it's come out in a lot of international editions more than ever before, and I'm about to go to Germany doing quite a big tour all over the country, talking about it. And then, you know, it did it, it spark something in people, so that was, you know, very very exciting. I love how
1: nonchalant she is because we have a lot of authors on the show and they're always you know, promoting the book and we talk about the book. She's like, yeah, you know, it did. Actually, it came out in a bunch of international versions. You know what I mean? It's all over the world. Oh, yeah, and I'm going to go on a big speaking tour. You're, that's amazing. There's a
0: reason why
1: <laughs> I love
0: this woman. And I tell you that all the time, Vivian. Right. I really do. I mean, I really truly love you because you – You make Mm -hmm. us want to work fucking harder. Wow. And I don't. That's the problem. But you make us (laughs) want to, because you really, I'm going to start crying. No, I love you, Vivian. That's all.
1: I mean, so was there (laughs) anything in doing research in this book? Did you discover anything or anybody that really kind of excited you and took you by surprise because you didn't see it coming?
2: The whole thing. Really? The whole thing. It exceeded my expectations of what I hoped for. You know, and what's the most shocking thing in the book? Because, you know, I divide it into themes of identity, you know, money, different themes, and um, um, love, unlove, and protest. And quite early on in the book, the first Chinese punk, you know, Mm -hmm. um, uh, she's anti-abortion, you know, and she's so strident, like, you know, she was – I thought we were corresponding by email, and she was like, I tear men's hearts up like toilet paper or something like that. <laughs> and, and then, you know, that was, you know, I, I was shocked by her being anti abortion. I had a bit of a dialogue with her about it. I said, you know, I don't want to presume, but were your th- was your thinking ever impacted by the one child rule? You know, didn't. Anyway, she wasn't happy with that question. She, you know, she thought I was an old colonial or whatever, I, I, you know. For her, I think it was a spiritual thing. But, you know, basically it was um, these stories of women overcoming. And and then I have young women reading the book, you know, just coming up. And they were excited to see that, well, not they were excited that they had struggles, but they were excited to see that they were not alone in their struggle.
1: This is generational. and The fights that women have been fighting for... Decades upon decades upon Century. decades. Centuries.
2: Yeah. That <laughs> part. We need, you know, different cultural gatekeepers would help. We need more like mm-hmm. women producers, women ANR, women label heads. And, that, you know, uh, uh, more women having more access to making music is really a way of making a living. But it doesn't only apply to music, you realize. Look at the art world. Look at the art world. Only I, recently are women getting their props. When I was coming, there was, was just like almost no women artists could make a living, right? Well, I, I, do a,
1: I do have a question that I that I never that I that have never asked. Who actually is the is there somebody who comes to the top as the most successful of the female punk artists? Is there somebody who has had well, the career, a still little, has the career. Financially little, had, got fun. to reap the benefits of a career.
2: Well, I mean, there were people who were punks because they coincided with the punk movement who would have been successful in any era of popular music, if that's what you mean. And yeah. when I think about that, the main people that come to mind are uh, Debbie Harry of Blondie yeah. gonna... and Chrissy right. Hind. Right. You know, they had the chops and they right. had, you know they adapted to that era. You know, Debbie Harry, had right. been a folk singer, this and that and the other. Chrissy was just a hardcore rock and roll chick. She would have been like Susie Quattro. She always liked to be one of the boys.
0: Right. That
2: was, you know, that was where she. She's so bad was on depressed. women though,
0: Chrissy Hine. She's, She's so
2: ba- She's not a, a woman's woman.
0: She's, she, likes to be, you know,
2: she likes to be one of the boys. You know, yeah. it's how she likes to be. Let her be free. Yes. You know, yes. so, um, But I think it's a bit antithetical to punk to ask that question, who's the most commercially whatever But, you know, there's some... Well, I just mean, is
1: there somebody who got to just have it? Because, you know, I know some people left and they just couldn't do it and didn't find a thing, but was there somebody who just got to be still a musician, made money? Because, you know, you see with the men, the men have been able to maintain and... Books and have the mythology and tours and all of these things. And it's like, and I never really, well, I guess Joan Jett, but was Joan Jett's not punk, right? Yes, yeah, totally,
2: totally punk, totally punk. But right. the other thing is there weren't that many of us. Right. And, and he was a vanguard and basically two of our leaders, to be honest, may not be punk, but they were our leaders, died within a short space of time, very young, of breast cancer, which right. is polystyrene of X-ray specs. You can see her daughter, Celeste, documentary about her um, I Am a Cliché is an award winning recent documentary and um, she was also the first black punk that really there was in in history or her story and then the other was a very close friend Ari Up of the Slits very controversial in every way she had dreadlocks and I remember I was teaching at NYU and one of my students was a young woman of Caribbean descent who was Totally, this was even some years ago, totally freaked out. Cultural appropriation of a white woman wearing dreadlocks in the 1970s. But the thing mm. is, Ari was actually a rasta. So I, I had mm. to explain to the girl, like, Bob Marley belonged to the 12 tribes of Israel. You, if you were into Jah, you, you could be in any race. Right. You, you just have, and, and Ari was, you know, so you've got to respect a person's spiritual beliefs. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, but yes, anyway, this is another story for another show because I saw that Gwen Stefania got ripped apart for wearing braids or something. Yeah, um, the other or
1: day. I like, g- yeah, or something. Or
0: something. Yeah. Yeah. Well I, think,
2: you
1: know, well, I think people think that, you know, they look at her as tricky because, you know, she had the Asian influence before and the Harajuku girls and. So now that everybody's very sensitive, it's like if you're influenced by a culture and you kind of put some of that in your art, people start to scream cultural appropriation. Well, she
2: started in a Scott band, though. Yeah. I, I think that's yeah, yeah, Art think is it's, about empathy. Art have, is about empathy and helping people understand each other. And the, you've got to also look at the work. This is a long-running right. debate. Yeah. At the end of the day, it comes down to capitalism. Right. It comes down to people getting paid for their work. And I think that a lot of talk about cultural appropriation, sometimes it should be direct, like, know your enemy. The other artist is not necessarily your enemy. Right. You know, you have to sort of work together to create more equitable conditions because people are upset because they never had a chance for a crack at the system and never got paid equally. That's the problem because art, you know, is always about, like, you, you know, look at African art. You see some... You, this is such a long debate and it's it so it easy really to put out of context. So, listeners, do not quote me out of context or I'll be really <laughs> upset because this is a super long, sensitive debate. We could have a whole show about it. And there's it so way. much nuance, and people, people don't,
1: people lose yeah. the nuance in this conversation. They take all of the nuance out. And I do believe when you start to, if you're a person who starts really being exposed, to different cultures and different people and you start to travel especially artists I don't care what your discipline is I don't care if you're a painter if you're a writer traveling around and spending time in different places and mm-hmm. different cultures starts to inform your art and if you're inspired I think you're allowed to be inspired I, people have to stop immediately That's jumping it. to cultural appropriation it's like Not everything is that. And you water down the real cultural appropriation by throwing that tag on
2: everything. If you look at the history of music, there's always been a a flow in music. For a start, the Moors from Africa Control so much of Europe in the early days that everywhere you go you get aspects of, of Africa, but embedded way before pop musical recorded music existed. You know, right. you hear echoes of Irish sea shanties in reggae. You know. Uh, anyway, this is such a huge debate, but it shows how interesting it is. Talking on the show, we should probably be quiet now.
1: Before <laughs> we talk about
2: but it's so they th- that, like, so getting skewed and the ju- you know people yeah. are. And I think the point you made was absolutely brilliant. Well, the good thing
1: I will say about the people who listen to this show is they seem to be smart and nuanced and understand because we put our foot in it all the time, but they actually seem to understand the points we're making because we talk about it all the time, how just there's no nuance in anything. mm There's just none. People are just, they want to be angry, so they're immediately angry. It's like, well, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Can we have a real conversation about this?
2: But anyway, you're yes. right. Let's,
1: let's people have this. to
2: understand things also in their context in the historical process. In look ta- what happened right, to Paul Robeson. Right. Do you remember what happened to Paul Robeson? Who yes. could be more an African giant than Paul Robeson? You right. know, and he, he was completely dismissed, uh, his contribution. Uh, you know, in his latter days. And people didn't, you know, they didn't understand to put it in a context. Anyway, listeners, do not put us out of context, yeah. because we just threw out a few things, ideas that were never fully discussed and resolved. So don't cancel us. And Rather, have be, us come back to explore these you ideas. Know what we- I
1: mean. <laughs> so the anthologies you're writing, how like, how much? What, when do you think you're going to be done?
2: Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, basically, it's an anthology of stuff that's already written. So, right. so you just have, I have to, put to write it, more. Yeah, but, you, but you, yeah, and more. you have
1: to put it all together. It's also yeah, very exciting. Yeah, that's the exciting.
2: process we're going through now. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a wild ride, actually. To be honest, mm-hmm. it's very very eclectic, and some people don't really understand that. But to me, that's its strength. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that's its strength. It's kind of funny looking at it all. Because, you know, like I said, we started out as all punks and we never had any training. And uh, right. now I teach journalism sometimes, so it's pretty funny at my early work. It always makes me laugh. Yeah. yeah. For me. <laughs> because for it doesn't you, follow you. any of the rules. It's completely yeah, right. so like
0: It's yeah. like, I never went to J school. I didn't go to college until I was a, a mother, you know? It's like... Do as I say, not as I did, or something. I think what Courtney's point, and your point, too, the, about the new ones, that we don't think contextually at all. We don't think critically anymore. It's like reaction. Everything is made for an emoji and an instant reaction, and that's where you get into
2: trouble. You I have know? no sense of, of the historical process. None. Without a sense no of the historical process, people are lost, and hence people are lost. By-
0: everybody, As Courtney said, everybody wants to be mad all the time. You know, and I get stoking. it. Listen,
1: there's a lot to be fucking mad about, but yes. be mad about the be mad about the real shit. Don't know create this enemy. other stuff, right? That's the thing. They the enemy loves that we're fighting about dumb shit that doesn't matter, while over here the fucked up shit is taking place, and we're all arguing about shit that does not matter. All right.
2: Divide and rule. Well, everybody's just squabbling, you know, squabbling, all the artists together. There's no unity. Yeah. You, you yeah. can't have a mass opposition. So people have to find a way to, even if we, there are differences between us, why regard it as a threat? Rather, regard it as a, a, a way to make our, our unity stronger because everybody has something different to contribute.
1: Yeah, it's true. Valve living in Jamaica, <laughs>
2: Sunny, mostly, or potentially <laughs> rainy. Um, well, it's just funny how life works out because I was just here when COVID hit my Queens area, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, really, really badly. I was looking at the New York Times and seeing like my blog on one of those panoramic yeah. pictures. And this yeah. is the epicenter of the virus in America. Hey! Right, uh, and you're
1: like, um I know that area very well <laughs> yeah.
2: and one thing led to the other and I'm you know I, you know I'm still a resident of Queens and I'll be home mm. soon but I've been able to spend a significant amount of time here and uh, you know it's great for the old uninterrupted writing where you have to go right. head, head down and just cut mm. off Boing! you know so because then I, I, I'm by the sea and I'm a swimming full so <sighs>
1: I love the water, you don't understand how much I love the water. And as it's to like the going state of
2: Jamaica, that'll be another show.
1: Yeah.
2: But it's great to be here, and to be honest, it's so much cooler here now since they legalized marijuana. Because before, obviously, especially in the artistic community, everybody was under threat all the time and being busted really? all the time. But now, you know, so that has helped, you know, On just one aspect of obviously a very, very, very complex political situation, I suppose I'm just talking from within the artistic community, many of whom smoke marijuana. Though not all, I hasten to add.
1: Amy smokes marijuana. Amy no, I mean, she <laughs> no, she does not smoke Amy,
0: has, Amy has do smoke. Amy, Amy, Amy heard it was a gateway drug, so she decided just to skip ahead. <laughs> 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 it's so funny. But that's funny because my family, right? You were, you were
1: Sorry. like, why would I do that? I don't have Let time me just for go. <laughs> I
0: was in, like, a quasi-cult group. We had to give <laughs> up smoking weed. No, seriously. That's another show. And I said, you know what? I don't have time for this shit. I'm going ahead to the next phase. I'm sorry.
1: No, no, no. We're not skipping past that. You were in a cult? <laughs> I was in a group. I was
0: quasi. I was, in, I was studying Gurjeef Ospensky for a few months because of a What's boyfriend. That? Uh, Is it, like, est? Know. No. Well, it pre, it's, I can't even. I'll, I, 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 I only did it because my boyfriend at the time was into it and he was very involved in it. And his, the leader of the study group there was said, either bring her with you or break up with her because she keeps asking too many questions. <laughs> bring her with you. And I would go and wake up every morning at five o'clock and uh-huh. read Tales of Beelzebub and. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. It's a lot. Robert Fripp, Daryl Hall, Peter Brook, the late Peter Brook. It's a lot. It's, oh very, it's a lot of very interesting stuff mm-hmm. in it, but at 18 years old, right. a year out of high school, I was not equipped to do that. <laughs> I just wanted to get have cute boyfriends and, and smoke weed and drink. I might be more equipped now. And that's all I'll say about that. <laughs>
1: Well, Vivian, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. Oh my God.
0: (laughs) Don't use that as the poll quote, Courtney. Oh no. It's so done.
1: It was so. You're toast, bitch. It's toast. (laughs) That is so the poll quote. (laughs) Are you kidding? that is gold <laughs> it's like remember that time when amy was in a cult you know what i mean i, I, I that, I'd like to rephrase it as an
0: intellectual exercise like, rather than a cult i didn't have to shave my head and and i was free to do what i wanted. i
1: remember i had a cousin who was in dieperg in college and everybody was like you're a communist it was very that's you know that's my adjacent to someone in NYPERG. i don't even know but well, well, anyway <laughs> amy Take us out.
0: (laughs) All right, everybody. This has been, I'm gonna let you finish. Um, Vivian. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me. We've had a very vigorous chat. I just hope we're not quoted out of context. Oh, no,
0: we no, no, no. Be. We, we, we no. are the context people. Courtney, yeah.
2: can you give our call letters,
0: please? Because you got that. Someone told me you sound like a radio DJ, and I love okay.
1: that. Oh, really? Thank yeah. you so much. And <laughs> yeah. this radio DJ accepts all tickets to the Pet Shop Boys. <laughs> all tickets to Pet Shop Boys I'm working in on it. Um, Guys, thank you so much for listening to us on the Pantheon Podcast Network, where you can hear us every Thursday, along with over 70 amazing music shows. They have a really good one right now about the beginning, the early days of cable, Doug Herzog, that I'm listening to. It's really, 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 really good stuff. Um then you know where we are. We're on iHeart. We're on Deezer. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple. We're on Google. We're on Amazon Music. We're in your mother's living room. We're in your father's couch. We're at the (laughs) weed dealer's truck. We're everywhere. So you also know that you can chat with us on Facebook because you're all old like us at I'ma Let You Finish. For you young people, we're on the TikTok at I'ma Let You Finish podcast.
0: We're on the TikTok. (laughs) We're also
1: on the Instagram at I'ma (laughs) Let You Finish NY. And we're also, where are we? We're on Twitter at Shima, we hate that fucking name. We totally do. But what can we do? That was the one. We tried every fucking variation. The person who had I'm going to let you finish wouldn't give it up and haven't used that shit in years. But, you know, hey.
0: Life goes on.
1: Life goes on. It's hot. Next week is my birthday. So, <laughs> uh, yes, it is. July 31st. I will be 35 years old. So I'm mm-hmm. very, 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 very happy. Metric.
0: 35 metric, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's July. It's hot. We love you. Vivian, you're amazing. She's got a lot of books. You guys need to go get them all. Get them all. Get them all.
0: It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Vivian. It's great to see you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Love you, Babe. Bye. Bye.